Hello all, and a very warm welcome to this week's episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, episode number 20. I'm Paul, your host and the True Crime Enthusiast of the title, and I thank you guys for joining me. If it's your first time, a big hello, and if you're a regular listener, then thanks very much. The continued support means the world. Thanks as well to my latest very kind Patreon supporters of the show, namely Felicity Ellis, Red Pender and Liana Shaw. There's a bonus episode already up for you guys, with another in the works and some mail that is also heading out to some supporters. And I know I do reiterate each week, but thanks also for the continued reviews that the show gets. I really appreciate them, even the honesty pointed out in some, and I do take on board constructive criticism and I try to take steps to improve it. So if it ever sounds like I'm reading from a script, all I can say is, I'm not Martin Scorsese, I try to be down to earth and come across that way on the show, but it is impossible to do by yourself without a script. And it is a show that I'm happy with, but I do go on the thinking that it can always be better, that way I don't become complacent. So I do heartily welcome people getting in touch with suggestions and input, it all helps to make the show. So I hope everybody's good this week, all well? I was very pleased with the feedback for last week's listener written episode. I thought it was a refreshing change and I was really happy with the cases that I was sent. There's some great writers out there, don't you agree? It's definitely something I'm doing again. If anyone else would be interested in doing the same with a case that you think is suitable for an episode of the show in the future, then please get in touch. Now as I'm sure a lot of you will agree, there are a ton of great true crime podcasts out there and I've decided that I'm not going to search out any new ones to myself until I've caught up with the backloads of episodes from the core ones that I listen to already, and believe me, there are more than a few episodes. It's quite rare that I seem to get the time to listen to them, so once I'm all caught up, then it's time to look for some more. So this week, my earworms have been the latest episode from the Outlines podcast, where Jess Carter covers a case that I had at one time considered for the show myself. It's an unsolved murder from 1974, covered excellently in depth, and it actually features a bit from the actual location, so it's well worth a listen. I've also enjoyed the latest from the Asian Madness podcast, which is a grisly tale from Russia about the one cop that you wouldn't want to go to in an emergency. And the first as well this week in a two-part episode from Murder Mile, concerning a bit of a mystery unsolved from the 1930s. Or is it? So this week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast is the second week which is a bit of a first, for in this episode we aren't just confined to the UK as we usually are. The case featured this week spans 18 years in total and as much has its stem in the country of Italy as it does in the UK. It is however a bit of a nasty case so please be advised that this week's episode may contain content that some listeners may find disturbing. So as always with that in mind Please join the true crime enthusiast as we recount the case of the hair fetishist. Bournemouth is a large coastal town on the south coast of England, located in the county of Dorset. It's a very popular tourist resort, and I didn't know until researching this, but it's twinned with the beautiful city of Lucerne in Switzerland. Now I've visited both of them over the years, and I can honestly say that I really couldn't compare the two. I'm never quite sure just exactly what it entails when a place is twinned with another, so if anybody does know and can let me know, that'd be great, many thanks. Apart from its popularity with tourists, Bournemouth is notable for being the birthplace of famous people such as former tennis champion Virginia Wade, comedian and actor Tony Hancock, and the author of Frankenstein, Mary Shelley. With a population nearing 200,000 people, it's the largest settlement in Dorset and is split into several different suburbs. And just east of the town centre is the suburb of Boscombe. This is a seaside resort that's seen mixed fortunes over the years. It's been affluent, then its fortunes have waned, and since the mid-2000s have come full circle and it now has a reputation as an up-and-coming area. One of the longest roads in Boscombe is Capstone Road, a long, respectable and pleasant-looking residential street consisting mainly of large bay-windowed properties that runs off the main road running through the Boscombe area, the A338, and is in quite close proximity to the home ground of English Premier League team AFC Bournemouth, the Vitality Stadium. It looks like a quiet residential street, and for the majority of its existence, it's been just that. 
until the 12th of November 2002, when it was changed forever. 48-year-old mother of two, Heather Barnett, was a lifelong resident of Dorset, being born in the north region of Sturminster-Newton on the 29th of August 1954, before moving south to Bournemouth as an adult in the late 1970s. She had moved to attend a local college, where she worked hard and showed a natural flair for tailoring, eventually gaining a diploma in curtain making. As soon as she had this, she made a living for herself as a self-employed curtain and dressmaker, at first renting a small premises in the neighbourhood of Winton, before opting instead to work out of the converted dining room of her home at 112 Capstone Road. As the years went by, Heather developed a solid reputation as a skilled seamstress, and she'd built up a client base of people from all over Dorset. People would come from far and wide with jobs, from repairing curtains to making wedding dresses. She was a keen professional at this and loved her work, having a good eye for detail and an artistic temperament. She prided herself on her work and was a perfectionist in all that she undertook. Heather, who was known affectionately to her friends and family as Bunny, was described as feisty, strongly principled but with a wicked sense of humour. She was much liked by her many friends and loved very dearly by all of her family. But Heather's greatest passion in life, above all, was for her children. She'd been in a relationship for many years with a man called David Marsh, and although the couple had never married, they had had two children together. First their son Terry in 1988, and then three years later their daughter Caitlin. Sadly, the relationship had broken down just two years after Caitlin was born, and David had moved out. As a single mother, Heather had to work harder than ever, and although the home she and Terry and Caitlin shared was modest, it was well kept lived in and loved by them. Tuesday the 12th of November 2002 began like any ordinary day in the Barnet family home. Heather had risen at the crack of dawn as was her habit and had organised her busy working day whilst the children got themselves ready to go to school. It was the habit of Heather to drop them off at Summerby School in nearby Mallard Road each morning then return and work on her latest sewing orders from a converted workroom in the rear of the ground floor of their house at 112 Capstone Road. The children would then customary walk home together after school. That morning, Heather dropped both children off at school just after 8.30am, kissing both and wishing them a good day before returning home. A CCTV camera captured Heather's white Fiat Punto car turning into Capstone Road at 8.37am that morning, so she had headed straight home from doing the school run. At about 4pm that day, Terry and Caitlin returned home after they walked from school, and found that the door to the house, which was located on the side of the property rather than the front, was unlocked. This was nothing unusual, their mother's car was in the driveway, and she would normally be found busy at work in the workroom at the back of the property. But this time... The house felt eerily quiet. There was no radio on, which was usual for Heather to have on while she worked, and there was no response from the children repeatedly calling for her. They moved through the house and noticed that the only room door closed was that of the ground floor bathroom door. Both were later to say that they had an overwhelming sense that their mother was in there, so they went up and knocked on the door and called for her, but no answer. Slowly, because there was some resistance, they pushed open the door. What they found in that bathroom will stay with both Terry, Caitlin and the lives of numerous other people for the rest of their lives. Please be advised that the following contains disturbing descriptions of a crime scene. Terry and Caitlin looked down to see the body of their mother lying on her back in the middle of the bathroom floor. Her feet had been preventing the door from opening smoothly, but all thoughts of their mother having had an accident, taken ill or fallen, were soon dispelled, and after a moment, both could take in the horrific scene that greeted them. Heather lay straight out on her back, her left hand beside her body, and her right hand had been placed on the lower part of her stomach. Her jeans had been unfastened and slightly pulled down, whilst her upper clothing had been pulled up to just below her neck. Her bra had been slit between the cups at the front, exposing her bare torso. A large pool of blood had congealed from the savage wounds that Heather had suffered. She'd been brutally battered and had received several severe head wounds from a blunt instrument. 
The throat had also been cut from ear to ear with a sharp knife, a knife so sharp that it had slashed so deeply that the spinal column was visible. But there was much worse, because Heather's killer had also sliced off her breasts and placed them alongside her head. It's really unimaginable just how traumatic that must have been for her own children to find their mother that way. That truly is something that you would never, ever forget. I don't even know how you'd even begin to learn to live with such horror as that. Terry and Caitlin rushed out of the house in obvious shock, too stunned for what they'd seen to even sink in properly just yet. Whilst Caitlin sat in shock on the pavement, Terry eventually went back inside the house and telephoned the emergency services through 999, obviously in some state of distress, but trying to retain some composure and clarity. But the shock and the incomprehensible horror of the situation must have come through, as Terry could only simply say, My mum's just been murdered. This isn't a joke. She's been cut up. She is dead. Once he'd contacted the emergency services, still in a dreamlike state, he then went back outside to be with Caitlin, who was now sat crying on the pavement. The two children then saw a car pull up, belonging to a couple who lived across the street at number 93, Fiamma Marsango and her fiancé Danilo Restivo. Seeing the children in obvious distress, Fiamma and Danilo went over to them, and after being told what had occurred in a confused state due to this distress, Fiamma tried to contact emergency services to ensure they were on their way. Another passerby who had stopped attempted to do the same thing, whilst Danilo hugged the two children tight to him. He and Fiamma then ushered the children across the road into number 93 to await police arrival. Police and paramedics arrived shortly, and after paramedics had ascertained that there was no way to preserve Heather's life, the house was declared a crime scene, and as is routine, the street at either end was cordoned off as a potential extension to the scene, and investigation was opened. Crime scene forensic investigators, a home office pathologist, and detectives entered the murder scene whilst the police officer was tasked to be with Terry and Caitlin. Other officers began immediately on house-to-house inquiries and to speak to neighbours and onlookers, whilst the team began immediately to look at Heather's life, her acquaintances and relationships. When investigators entered the scene, the whole house was photographed as again is routine, but it was when they got to the bathroom that they could fully appreciate the horrific scene that had been left for Heather's children to find. The pathologist who examined the body in situ found Heather to be cold to the touch, with rigor mortis having already begun to set in. Due to the advancement of this, opinion was given that Heather had been dead for some hours, most likely killed between 8.30 to 9.30 that morning, shortly after she'd returned from taking her children to school. Heather was still clothed, and although this had been disarranged, there was no sign of any sexual assault or rape. The wounds to her head were found to be multiple, no less than ten, caused by repeated strikes from a hard, flat-edged weapon that in the opinion of the pathologist was most likely a hammer. This was the likely cause of Heather's death, and the other mutilations had been inflicted post-mortem, with her throat being cut with a very sharp blade. Her clothing had been disarranged, and her breasts had then been sliced off and placed either side of her head, again with a sharp knife. It was suspected at the time that the weapon was either a sharp filleting knife or possibly a scalpel. So if this is already savage enough, what kind of maniac does something like this? But it was about to take a turn for the more bizarre. A discovery was made that made police think initially that they may have the killer in a very short time. It was not, however, to prove the case. Clutched in Heather's hands were two clumps of human hair about 30 or so in number, in her left hand a clump of her own hair, but the right contained hair of a different colour and length to hers, about 9 centimetres in total. Had she wrenched it from the head of her killer? It would seem possible. There were certainly marks on her hands, bruising and cuts, where it seemed that she'd fought against her killer. Yet it appeared that the hair had been cut off, as there were no roots showing it had been pulled out and it seemed more to have been placed in her hands than held. It was photographed at the scene, and then was preserved for forensic examination. 
An examination of the rest of the scene established that Heather's killer had entered through the front door and had either a key or had unsuspectingly been admitted inside. There was no sign of any forced entry to the property. The patio doors were locked from the inside with the key still in the lock and although the front door was open when the children had discovered their mother, the key was still in the lock. From blood spatters found at the scene, it also appeared that Heather had been initially attacked in the hallway just outside the workroom. She'd been felled by a couple of blows to the head from behind, possibly as she attempted to flee from her killer and had been struck to the floor. The killer had then struck her several more times, then dragged the body through the workroom and lounge into the bathroom, where the dreadful mutilation had been inflicted. More bloodstains were also found in various places throughout the area and luminol testing of the crime scene was to reveal traces of bloody shoe prints, later to have determined to have come from a size 9.5 Nike trainer. The footprints were found to be concentrated around the bathroom but were also found to circle around an area of the workroom on a chair in which a bloodstained green towel was also found. But no trace of the footprints could be found near the front door where the killer had to have left the house from. No shoes from the house were found to be missing, so had the killer brought a change of shoes with him to the scene, and likely a change of clothing, as the extensive mutilation and violence used meant that the killer would be heavily bloodstained. Police struggled to find a clear motive for the killing. Nothing appeared to have been stolen from the house, or the house ransacked, and Heather had not been raped. The killer had made no attempt to do so before or after her death. Yet there were hallmarks to the crime that suggested to police that this murder was sexual in nature. There was the disturbing of clothing, the obvious sexual mutilation to Heather, and the human hair not hers in her hands. It was tested and a DNA match was not found. It also appeared that the murder had been pre-planned by a killer with a level of forensic awareness. There were no unidentifiable fingerprints found at the scene, suggesting he wore gloves and as no one heavily bloodstained had been seen leaving that day, it suggested a killer familiar with the house and the area who could leave without drawing attention to themselves. Plus it also appeared as though the killer had brought a change of clothes and footwear with them. House to house inquiries revealed nothing, no screams or sounds of a struggle were heard, and no one had been noticed acting suspiciously around the property that morning, or watching Heather's house. The savagery of the killing, and the killer's obvious pre-planning and forensic awareness made detectives sure that the person they were hunting had offended before, so a check of all known local sex and violent offenders in the area was undertaken. It drew a blank. A mass search was undertaken that near spread throughout the county of Dorset itself for the murder weapons, with every possible place scoured and searched, but nothing was found. A look into Heather's life also provided no leads for police. The father of her children, David Marsh, whose relationship with Heather was described as stormy, was cleared as a suspect early on in the investigation. Heather was not in any relationship at the time and had no problems with any ex-partners. No one was found to describe her in any less terms than wonderful. She was well liked, well thought of and was loved by her friends and family alike. She never went out of her way to stand out. She dressed conservatively but smartly. She was comfortable in her income but not extravagant. She was just your average hard-working single parent. Yet it seemed that she'd been deliberately targeted. The ritualistic staging of the crime scene suggested that someone had planned this, had fantasised about this, and had watched Heather, was familiar with her routines and movements. This wasn't someone picked at random, there was too much to chance that could go wrong. What if one of the children was homesick from school that day, or Heather had a client with her discussing a job? There'd be no way to ascertain that unless the killer had been watching that morning and knew Heather would be alone at that time. Was it a stalker? She'd never confided in her family or friends that someone had been bothering her and had displayed no evidence of looking over her shoulder constantly in fear, something that surely she would have shared but detectives did learn one piece of information that may possibly have had some bearing on the murder. About a week before she was killed, Heather had lost her spare front door key. She was normally fastidious and extra careful about such things, and it had mysteriously disappeared. If she hadn't opened her door voluntarily, 
Was it because her killer already had a key to her house? As part of routine house-to-house inquiries, all of the residents of Capstone Road were spoken to, and on the Saturday following the murder, the 16th of November 2002, Danilo Restivo was visited by police. He was asked for his movements on the day of Heather's murder, and he claimed that he'd left home between 8.10 and 8.20am that day, walked to nearby Charminster Road where he'd caught a bus at 8.44am, producing the ticket. He had arrived at his college where he was studying computing at 9 o'clock and he'd been here until 3.45pm when he'd been collected by his fiancée Fiamma. He was also asked if he had any Nike trainers to which he replied that he had and he readily provided them for inspection, a grey pair. The interviewing officer was satisfied with this and left to speak to the next people on his list. The following day, Restivo was again visited by police who were collecting samples from all males in the area for purposes of elimination. Hair samples, saliva and fingerprints were all being taken, to which Restivo again was cooperative with police, and as a matter of routine he was again asked if he had any Nike trainers. After claiming he had shown the officer them the previous day, Restivo was pushed again to show them but couldn't, because by now, they were submerged in the bathroom in a solution of bleach. When asked why, Restivo claimed because they were dirty and smelling foully of plastic. When challenged as to why he would use bleach, Restivo replied that he thought he was using ordinary household soap. Thinking that something didn't sit quite right with this, the trainers were seized by the officer, and although Restivo was not arrested, he did become a person of interest in the inquiry. A test was made on the trainers and they did show traces of what likely was to have been blood on the inside sole of the shoe. It was the opinion of scientists that whoever had worn them had at one time placed an object, likely a foot, inside them that had been wet with a substance that had likely been blood. But a DNA sample of whose blood it was, however, was unable to be made as bleach is known to destroy or diminish any chance of a DNA profile being obtained. Restivo's alibi for the day of the murder seemed to check out though, he had no criminal record in the UK, and although his actions concerning his trainers were suspicious indeed, it was not enough to make the massive jump to number one suspect, so police continued with the inquiry. By the beginning of 2003, police were still nowhere nearer to catching Heather's killer. A £10,000 reward had been offered for information received that led to the arrest of her killer, but all obvious initial inquiries had so far led to nothing. It did seem that Heather had been deliberately targeted, but no one was found with a grudge enough to inflict such horror. So now the hair sample found in Heather's hand was looked at as the main source of inquiry, as it had not been possible to obtain a DNA sample from because the hair had been cut. It had obviously been placed at the scene, not dropped, and was significant to the killer. Where had the hairs come from and what was the significance? A search for murders with a similar MO in the UK got underway, but proved a blank. Yet detectives could not believe that this was the killer's first crime. And then a search found results. Reports started to trickle in of women all over Bournemouth, all with substantial lengthy hair, who at different times had reported having had their hair cut or fondled on buses and trains across the town, or in cinemas around the area. More than one woman had reported having felt the hair being messed with and had turned around and challenged a dark-haired, well-built man who was sat behind them about it, who had denied doing anything. It was only when they got home and examined themselves in a mirror that they discovered having had a lock of hair cut from their head, a lock of hair about 9 centimetres in length. The inquiry team felt that sure that this was the same person they were hunting. There was some weirdo going around snipping hair from unsuspecting women in Bournemouth and also a savage murder in the same town that had chilling ritualistic hallmarks and clumps of hair were found in the victim's hands. There had to be a connection and efforts got underway to trace the woman who was the owner of the clump of hair found in Heather's hands. Find this woman and they may just have a road to the killer. This is where I always marvel about the wonders of forensic science and how groundbreaking it continues to be. Using a procedure known as stable isotope analysis, 
Tests on the hair found at the scene showed it to have come from a female who was indigenous to the UK, but who in the three months before the hair was cut had made two trips abroad, one to the Valencia area of Spain and one to the suburban area of Tampa, Florida. Scientists were also even able to determine that she'd also changed diets twice in this time. All this from just 30 strands of hair. I find that incredible that science can now narrow down specifics such as that and technological advancement makes it possible. Doesn't everyone? Isn't that incredible? I'm sure I'm not just easily impressed and that is miraculous. Although what's trivial and accepted as the norm to some may be amazing and like sorcery to another. I get that. I do come from a place where they haven't long had real people. And not all there are sure what the film Jaws is about, so it impresses me, you know what I mean? But however, despite all this, they didn't provide a DNA profile of the female. Tentative inquiries were made at hair salons throughout the area, and an appeal was made for any woman with a matching hair colour who had travelled to both Valencia and Florida between August and November 2002 to come forward. If she had had hair cut off in the same vein as other women had reported, perhaps she could provide an accurate description of the man to give police a description of a suspect. Despite this mass appeal to what would have only been a selective target group, the owner of the hair was never identified. As the owner had travelled, it also struck police that it may be possible that the hair may have been obtained in either Spain or Florida and brought back to Bournemouth. Was the killer someone who travelled or had connections to either Spain or Florida? Apparently this is not an uncommon fetish really and a fetish for hair is one that's found worldwide. But it couldn't be discounted. Perhaps one of these people who had a connection to the UK, particularly Bournemouth, was the person that police were hunting. But again this was a massively daunting task. Even with the assistance of Interpol, The sheer number of people who had come to police attention for a hair fetish was vast, yet it was a line of inquiry that had to be checked, and eventually it was down this route of inquiry that led detectives to a breakthrough and gave them what was to be their prime suspect. By widening their search and including Interpol to look for possible suspects, Detective Chief Superintendent James and his team now had access to a database of people who had come to police attention or committed crimes in different countries but not necessarily in the UK, and subsequently who may not appear on any of the UK police's offender databases. One of the names that was to jump out at detectives was Danilo Restivo, the same Danilo Restivo, the neighbour of Heathers who lived across the road at number 93, and who had consoled her children that afternoon as he and his fiancée were first on the scene. As Restivo was still a person of interest in the inquiry due to his proximity to the murder scene, plus his suspicious behaviour with the trainers and the bleach, detectives now sat up and took proper notice. What they learned from Interpol about why he was on the database was enough to make detectives from the Heather Barnett investigation team immediately book passage on a flight to Restivo's home country of Italy. Their destination? Potenza a city near Naples in southern Italy. In 1993, Elisa Claps was a very pretty, very happy, 16-year-old living in Potenza. She was popular and a hard-working, good-natured student and a devout Christian, one who regularly attended Mass with her family and prayed each morning after waking and each evening before bed. As Elisa was a real beauty with a killer smile and long dark hair and eyes, boys were queuing up to date her, She was so popular and had turned many heads, young and old. One of the heads that she had turned was that of 21-year-old Danilo Restivo. Restivo lived at the time in Potenza, the son of a well-respected family in the city's elite circles. He'd been born in 1972, and from an early age had been regarded as someone who stood out from the rest of people, a sensitive and lonely child whose peers avoided him not only because he was awkward, but because he also had a sadistic streak. In 1986, aged 14, he was found to have tied two younger children to a tree and inflicted a series of cuts upon them. Surprisingly, the police didn't get involved in this matter. The parents of each child instead resolved it between themselves, 
perhaps in some stereotypical Italian way, of preserving the family good name and not wanting to draw attention to themselves or shame? As a warning sign like this was ignored, Restivo's sadistic streak was left to develop, and it was about this time that he began to take an interest in girls. But not knowing how to approach women in an appropriate way, he instead came across in a way that more often than not creeped them out. He would target a girl, then pester them for dates claiming that he had a gift to give them. Any rejection would be met with a series of silent telephone calls, or music played down the telephone. Most notably the theme to Profondo Rosso, which is a 1975 Italian giallo film, also known as The Hatchet Murders. Yeah, nice, eh? Sometimes also the music would be a piece by Beethoven, a piece known as Fur Release, or which is also commonly known as Fur Release. Do you think you can see where this is heading? It seemed that the one group of people who were willing to acknowledge that Restivo had serious issues was the military. At the time, national service was still compulsory in Italy, and at the point where Restivo was due for conscription, he was medically examined as routine before joining up. But something in the young man must have shone through that his parents either couldn't or wouldn't see, and he was deemed unfit for service. The reason? Army doctors described Restivo as having serious psychiatric issues, primarily towards sexual behaviour. Then in 1992, 23-year-old Angela Camposciaro was in a cinema in Potenza with her boyfriend when she had a 10cm lock of her hair cut from her head. She had felt someone in the seat behind her touching her hair and heard the unmistakable sound of scissors. Turning around, she challenged the person sat behind her, a young man who denied having touched her at all. Angela's boyfriend, Nicola Marino, then glanced back to see the young man masturbating in the seat, and after telling him very loudly what he thought of him and causing a bit of a commotion, the man left in a hurry. The man was Danilo Restivo. It was known to be him because he was known to the couple, and it was also around this time that several other young women around Potenza and the surrounding areas complained of being targeted in this way. Restivo was never prosecuted or even charged with any of these cuts, whatever you'd class them as, again possibly due to his family not wanting to bring shame or scandal. But word got around as it does, and it became well known that he had a bit of a thing for her. By 1993, Restivo was unsurprisingly still quite a loner, because cracking one off in the pictures isn't really the type of behaviour that will win you too many friends, I wouldn't imagine. He'd grown into a young man that was described as awkward-looking and ungainly, and he personally felt that his biggest problem, one that he documented in his diaries, was that he had problems relating to girls. They intimidated him, and he didn't know how best to approach them. For a while, he'd tried the route of offering them presents, but that hadn't worked. Most would just rebuff him and not care if his feelings were hurt. He was just some weirdo that they wanted nowhere near them. But Lisa Claps wasn't like that. Yes, Restivo had pestered her for dates, claiming to be in love with her despite the age difference between them. And Elisa had firmly told him that she wasn't interested in him and was in a relationship with another man who she was engaged to and hoped to marry soon. And it's true she had no romantic feelings whatsoever for Restivo. But Restivo hadn't given up and he told Elisa that he wished for them to remain friends and meet up from time to time. So perhaps if she felt bad for the friendless loner, Elisa had agreed to meet Restivo at the Church of the Most Holy Trinity in Potenza following Mass on Sunday the 11th of September 1993. That day, the Claps family were planning an afternoon picnic and Elisa's friend Iliana de Silis was also invited. So Elise told her family that she would be back a short while later than them as she was staying behind to meet someone briefly after Mass. The Claps family attended the 11 o'clock Mass that day and Elisa and Eliana remained behind. At about 11.35am, Elisa slipped back into the church claiming to Eliana that she'd only be a few short minutes and told her to wait outside for her. When 45 minutes had passed and neither Elisa nor Estivo had come out of the church, Eliana had headed off in a bit of a huff, intending to have a go at Elisa when she next saw her. Elisa's family were also in a bit of a huff by now, waiting for her, 
and her older brother Gildo was sent to the church to find his sister. Upon his arrival there, he asked the priest, Father Mimi Sabia, if he'd seen Elisa, which the father replied that he hadn't since all of the family had been there together earlier at Mass. After being assured that Elisa wasn't in the church, Gildo headed home. Hours passed with still no sign of Elisa, and her family's annoyance had by now given way to alarm. This was a happy girl with dreams of becoming a doctor and working in Africa. She wasn't the type to run away, something had to have happened. Police were contacted and Elisa was reported as a missing person. In 1993, mobile phones weren't widespread and social media was non-existent. You couldn't just reach out to someone and appeal to them instantly, and for them to instantly get in touch or be traced through a digital footprint. Flyers were put up around Potenza. People who'd been at the mass that day were spoken to, and inquiries were made at all the local train and bus stations, but to no avail. It seemed as though Elisa had vanished off the face of the earth. One of the first inquiries police made was to speak to the person who had last seen Elisa, Danilo Restivo, and he was open and forthcoming when interviewed. Yes, he admitted that he'd met Elisa that day in the area behind the altar known as the Apse, where he had a present for her for having done well in her recent exams. He had arranged them to meet there because he claimed that Elisa's mother wouldn't have approved of her meeting with him, and he knew that this was a time and place that they would both be and that he could see her without her parents giving her any grief. He claimed that they'd chatted for a maximum of 10 minutes, by which time the church had emptied, and then they'd both left separately, avoiding the church main entrance. Elisa had left at 11.50am, and he had stayed to pray for a number of minutes before leaving the church at noon. He claimed that whilst doing so, he had seen Elisa clearly leaving the church through the side door. He claimed that she must be unhappy at home and she was taking a few days away. This didn't sit right with investigators. It didn't fit the picture of the happy girl that was described to them. And why would a girl, if she was planning to run away to start a new life, take no clothes or personal effects with her, giving herself a 10 minute window and having a friend wait outside for her, or have not discussed it with her closest friends? Police were also convinced that Restivo knew more than he was admitting to. Police also discovered during a check of local hospitals to see if Elisa had been admitted to one that day after having had an accident, that although she hadn't been admitted, Restivo had. He had a cut to the left hand that had required stitching, a clean cut wound about a centimetre deep and a centimetre and a half long between the thumb and the index finger. According to Dr. Michelle Albano, the doctor who treated him at the A&E department of the local hospital at 1.30pm that afternoon. It was also noted that despite the relatively small wound, Restivo's jacket and trousers were very heavily bloodstained. He was pulled in for questioning again, the first of what was to be several more times, and he explained that he'd cut his hand whilst falling crossing a building site whilst walking back from the church following his meeting with Elisa. He claimed he'd gone to the hospital for treatment, and he'd wandered through the town before catching a bus to Naples later that afternoon, and although he claimed he was meeting people there in Naples, he declined to name any of them. His story was to remain for the most part the same as his first initial interview. He didn't know where Elisa was, except that he'd seen her leave the church that day, just surely before he had, Meanwhile, Elisa was still missing. Her family searched tirelessly for her, visiting all sorts of places searching for her, or asking anyone who may have seen her. Appeal after appeal was made, and as time passed, so did their hope of finding her alive. And as days turned into weeks, their anger grew as to what the police were actually doing. There was no evidence that a crime had even been committed. After all, thousands of young people do disappear and police were still actively treating Elisa as a likely runaway. Although they were convinced that Restivo knew more than he was telling and was somehow involved in her disappearance, perhaps having helped her to disappear. He was placed under police surveillance for some time after Elisa went missing and finally in 1996, he was arrested and charged with perjury, with magistrates convinced of and accusing him of having lied in his statements concerning Elisa's disappearance, namely about the wound to his hand and his movements in general that afternoon. 
It seems that this was done out of desperation to be seen to be doing something, out of pressure from the Claps family and the press who'd got behind them to accuse law enforcement of resting on their laurels. But there was still no body, no forensic evidence and no sign that a crime had even been committed and suspicion cannot take the place of hard evidence. Restivo was to deny any charges put to him and stuck to his original story throughout, coming across in court as having a poker face that nothing could shake. One Italian police officer said, If he is a killer, then he's the coldest blooded bastard I've ever had the misfortune to encounter. He is truly scary, believe me. I've come across some mafia assassins in my time, but none has been as arctic as this one. He's the original Iceman. Restivo was found guilty of perjury and sentenced to a year and eight months, serving eight months in prison before being released. After this, he decided to leave Potenza, having had what he classed as a bad few years there, and to make a fresh start somewhere else. There had never been any sign of Elisa since the day she'd vanished after meeting Restivo, and her grieving family continued to search for her. Now it's reported that following his release, Restivo spent some time travelling around Europe and he is confirmed as spending time in both France and Spain, although how he supported himself and the dates and patterns of his movement cannot be ascertained. By 2002 however, he was back in his native Italy and had begun to develop an online relationship with an Italian woman some years older than himself, Fiamma Marsango, who lived in Bournemouth. The two had corresponded online for a while, and in early 2002, Restivo came over to visit her. The visit apparently went well, for just two weeks after returning to Italy, Restivo moved back over to the UK and began a relationship with Fiamma, moving in with her. Once in Bournemouth, Restivo immediately began to ingratiate himself with the Italian community that the town has. He also began to approach women in nightclubs there, and despite his relationship with Fiamma, he was a regular user of dating websites. And it was around this time that women on buses and trains in the Bournemouth area began randomly complaining that someone had cut their hair. Detectives from the Bournemouth murder squad flew to Potenza to liaise with their Italian counterparts and they learned all they could about Restivo. And the more they learned, the more convinced that they became that he was their man. It was too much to be just coincidence. The connection with Elisa collapsed, the harassment and obsessive behaviour, but most importantly, the hair fetish. Add to that he lived directly across the road from a murder victim whose death was caused by a killer with an obvious hair fetish and his suspicious actions of soaking his trainers in bleach and it was time to look at Danilo Restivo as a serious suspect in Heather's murder. And even more circumstantial evidence was to push Restivo into being the prime suspect. A statement made by Heather's son Terry shortly after her murder claimed that Heather thought it was possible that Restivo had had keys to be able to get into the house. Restivo had visited Heather's home about a week before her murder at about 8.30am one morning claiming that he wanted her to make some curtains for Fiamma as a surprise Christmas present although he didn't have time to discuss patterns and pricing them up. He'd not actually come too far into the house, instead waiting by the open front door as the two discussed this casually while Heather prepared to take her children to school. In fact, it was immediately after Restivo had left and Heather had dropped the children off and returned that she found her spare door key to be missing. She was convinced that Restivo may have picked it up, even going so far as to write a note addressed to Fiamma asking her to check if it was in his possession and posted it through the door of number 93. Heather also reiterated her suspicions about this in an email to a friend a day or so later. Restivo had denied having the key though and with no proof that he actually did have it, the matter had been dropped. Heather had even been over to number 93 to measure up for curtains a day or so later. But despite all of this and the inquiry team by now firmly believing that Restivo was the killer of Heather Barnett, they had no concrete evidence against him. As we've said numerous times here, suspicion cannot take the place of hard evidence. What police did have, however compelling it was, was circumstantial evidence and not enough to bring a prosecution against Restivo. The main concern police had was, would Heather's killer strike again? 
It had been such a ritualistic crime, it had clearly been fantasised about by the killer, and reliving the act will of course satiate for a period of time, but eventually it will plateau, and the act will need to be repeated. And that was an unthinkable option. So beginning in March 2004, a decision was made and Restivo was placed under close and covert surveillance. This involved him being shadowed everywhere he went, and the use of electronic surveillance devices installed at his home. On numerous occasions, in April and May 2004, he was observed at several secluded locations in rural Bournemouth, behaving very suspiciously. The weather was relatively warm and mild at the time, yet Restivo had a change of clothes with him, he placed on waterproof over-trousers and changed his shoes. He then placed on gloves, changed jackets into a hooded type jacket, and on several occasions had a black bag with him. On some occasions he appeared to be observing lone women, on others he appeared to be following them. On the 12th of May 2004, he was seen at a location called Throop Mill, dressed as described, and was seen to return to his car and deposit a black bag in the rear. Uniformed officers, who had been on standby and were aware of the surveillance against Restivo, approached him and asked him what he'd been doing, to which he replied he'd been out walking for exercise. He was visibly sweating while he was being spoken to. The car was searched and two pairs of scissors were found in the driver's side door pocket. When the black bag was searched, police found nothing except a large 12-inch filleting type knife and a packet of tissues. In the boot, police found a hooded jacket that contained a balaclava in the right pocket and a pair of gloves in the left. He claimed that these items were for protection against the cold and the knife was for picking up insects, which I'm sorry, but does sound an absolute load of bollocks. Although Restivo was again not arrested following this, the items were taken from him. This alarmed police, and they were forced to up their case. Alarming indeed this, isn't it? In June 2004, Restivo was arrested in a dawn raid at his home, just a few short weeks after he and Fiamma had married in a lavish ceremony. He was taken to Poole Police Station, where he claimed that he was happy to be interviewed and had nothing to hide. For the next three days, he was interrogated under caution and in the presence of an interpreter, and aside from Heather's murder, police also touched on the subject of Elisa Claps. Restivo gave the same story he had more than ten years earlier, and was never to waver. He managed to parry all questions that were put to him. He claimed he hardly knew Heather apart from to say hi to, and had only been in a house once in a trivial meeting. He had no sexual attraction to her, and no reason to kill or mutilate her. He challenged police for having no evidence against him, and invited them to search his house and examine his clothing, which they did. He repeated his previous explanation for bleaching his trainers, and when challenged about his behaviour the previous month at Throop Mill, he made no comment. He did, however, point out that he had no violent history and no criminal record of a sexual nature. After three days in police custody, Restivo was released without charge. And what followed were a number of years in which the police prime suspect in the murder of Heather Barnett remained free, despite increasing evidence suggesting his guilt, which was frustratingly and sometimes mind-bogglingly all judged to be circumstantial evidence. By September 2006, Detective Superintendent James had appeared on a now-defunct television series dedicated to gaining the public's assistance with crimes. Did you see what I did there this week? And made an appeal about Heather's murder. It alluded to everything that was known. The mutilation, the hair samples found placed on Heather, the hair cuttings and the connection with the case in Italy. Although it provided a lukewarm response. He also appeared on the Italian counterpart of the show in November that year, which provided better results. Several women responded and recounted their experiences at the hands of a phantom hair cutter. Most importantly, the descriptions of the perpetrator in each case closely matched Danilo Restivo. He was arrested for a second time following these appeals, but once again maintained his composure throughout and gave the police a message charge me or release me. He was released that evening, but this time on police bail. His home was searched again, and in the bathroom, in a Tesco carrier bag, 
was found a lock of hair tied with a green ribbon. Restivo claimed that it must have been planted there, but then information was received that threatened to destroy Restivo's alibi for the morning of Heather's murder. An assistant at a Bournemouth chemist identified a man seen on a CCTV still at 9.23am crossing Charminster Road in the direction of Capstone Road on the day of Heather's murder that had been shown as part of the television appeal. She identified this man as Danilo Restivo, who she knew as he was a regular customer. While this was important beyond doubt, it didn't prove conclusively that Restivo was a killer. It just suggested that he had lied about his movements on that day. But even with all of the evidence building against Restivo, it was still deemed not enough to charge and successfully prosecute him, and he remained free. Still, Dorset Police maintained the investigation into 2008, nearly six years after Heather had been murdered. They had their prime suspect, and for legal reasons had to stop short of saying that they were not looking for anyone else in connection with her murder. That year, the towel found in Heather's workroom had been examined using the latest breakthrough forensic technologies, and microscopic skin flakes found on it had proved that there was another DNA profile on it apart from that of Heather. In the opinion of scientists, the chances of the profile belonging to anyone other than Danilo Restivo were 1 in 57,000, and yet it was still deemed not strong enough evidence to charge him. Restivo had claimed that he had left it there on a previous occasion, the day when he had gone to discuss curtains with Heather. He claimed to have taken it for a colour match, and blamed a confused memory for overlooking this fact. In October 2009, Restivo approached Dorset Police and requested protection from them, as he'd received an anonymous package addressed to him in capital letters through the post. Inside were two shiny bronze bullet cartridges a traditional Mafia calling card. There was also a very clear death threat written in capital letters to disguise handwriting. The package had been posted in Naples, and while it was accepted that Restivo was a hate figure in Potenza due to his past exploits, it did cross police minds that Restivo could have orchestrated this himself, attempting to convey innocence by putting the onus onto him being a target also. It was investigated, but the sender, if they existed, was never found. But who was found was Elita Claps. On the 17th of March 2010, workmen carrying out repairs to a roof in the upper garret room of the Most Holy Trinity Church in Potenza noticed a terrible smell emanating from a section of alcove that had been bricked over but was now disintegrating and crumbling due to water damage to the old church. Removing the bricks, they found a mummified body. After nearly 17 years, Elisa had been found. When shown a picture of the clothes found on the skeleton, Elisa's mother, Philomena, positively identified them as being Elisa's. Her clothing and accessories looked almost the same as they had done on the day that she disappeared 17 years before, although the human remains were skeletonized, of course, after so long. Her watch and jewellery were still in place, her glasses were still beside the body, Examination of the body in situ revealed that Elisa's trousers had been lowered to below her underwear and the elastic on her knickers had snapped. Her bra had been cut in two between the cups and marks on the bones after an autopsy were found to suggest that she'd been stabbed at least 13 times with a small, sharp, very strong blade. But the most telling detail for detectives who were liaising constantly with Dorset police at by this point was that a clump of hair had been cut from Elisa's head and placed in her hand, and it was still there. Aside from their obvious grief, the Claps family's reaction was one of anger. Why had it taken 17 years for this poor girl to be found, in the place where she was known to have last been seen at? Why was she not found sooner? This fury spread throughout the town, directed at the police, against who local feeling was that they had acted ineffectively back in 1993, not treated the disappearance as a suspected murder rather than a runaway girl, and had not searched every inch of the church. There was even accusation levelled that the church had somehow attempted to cover up this, and the police had bowed down to avoid any scandal, and these are claims that go on still to this day. 
Following the discovery of Elisa, surveillance on Restivo was increased even further, and his phone calls were monitored, his internet search history and emails were scanned and checked to see if there was any sign of the nerve of the prime suspect, now in two murders, splintering and him fleeing. Although the surveillance showed that he was keeping himself updated with developments in Potenza, Restivo's demeanour didn't change otherwise in the slightest, and he went about his normal routine seemingly unaffected. At 6.30am on Wednesday 19th of May 2010, Restivo was once again arrested, now at his new home on Bournemouth's Chatsworth Road. He was again taken to Poole Police Station, but this time the arrest was different from the previous two. Aside from the link between the two crimes of the hair held in the hand, bloodstains found on Elisa's clothing had been tested over the previous two months and a DNA sample had managed to have been obtained from it. It belonged to Danilo Restivo and it couldn't have gotten there from the injury to his hand that day because that would have been after the murder. How else could it have got there? Was this the final piece of evidence that police needed to convict a double murderer? They believed so. On the afternoon of the 20th of May 2010, Restivo was charged at Poole Police Station with the murder of Heather Barnett, and the CPS issued a statement to the press outlining this development. The following day, Restivo appeared before magistrates and was further remanded in custody. He next appeared on Monday the 8th of November 2010 at Winchester Crown Court, where, speaking in Italian through an interpreter, Restivo pleaded not guilty to the murder of Heather Barnett. No application for bail was made, and a trial date was set for May 2011. The trial of Danilo Restivo began at Winchester Crown Court on the 11th of May 2011, presided over by Mr Justice Burnett. Over the course of a seven-week trial, a jury of seven men and five women were to hear all of the evidence, both circumstantial and best, that police had collected against Restivo over the eight and a half years since Heather had been murdered. In the prosecution's opening statement to the jury, Mr Michael Bowes QC told that they would hear testimony from a number of witnesses and experts that would show Restivo's character and conduct and this would prove that he was the person responsible for Heather's murder. They would also hear evidence presented that suggested Restivo's culpability in the murder of Elisa Claps in Potenza in 1993, and over the next few weeks, piece by piece of evidence was presented to the jury. Restivo's conviction for perjury in 1996 was revealed, footage from the undercover surveillance of Restivo taken at Throop Mill in May 2004 was shown to the jury, along with details of the electronic surveillance and the findings following the search of his car that day. One by one, female witnesses, both from the Bournemouth area and Italy, who had had part of their hair cut, were presented to the jury and testified, many of whom had identified Restivo as being the person responsible from photographs shown or police lineups. Testimony was also given by forensic scientists as to the DNA evidence belonging to Restivo being found on the bloodstained towel at the scene of Heather's murder and of the attempts to glean a DNA profile from the trainers belonging to Restivo that he had soaked in bleach. The jury were also taken to visit both the murder scene at 112 Capstone Road and Restivo's former home at 93 Capstone Road. His alibi for the morning of Heather's murder was also proven to be fabricated. Just because he had bought a ticket at 8.44am did not mean that he'd stayed on the bus. He could have got off at a subsequent bus stop and been back at Capstone Road by 8.55am. This had been tested by police the distance and time it would have took, and it was found that walking at a non-hurried pace, even from the nearest stop to the Nacro building, which was where Restivo was doing his course, was a journey of just 11 minutes. Furthermore, Restivo claimed that he had logged onto his computer on his course at Nacro at 9 o'clock a.m., but a computer forensics expert proved unquestionably that his computer had not been used until 10.10 a.m. Restivo had not even arrived at Nacro until just before this time. Testimony was also heard from witnesses in Italy through video link concerning the Elisa Claps murder after this was ruled admissible at this trial and also from several Italian women who had identified Restivo as being the person who had cut their hair. 
On the fifth week of the trial, Mastivo himself took the stand, where he was to spend four days in the witness box. He made no attempt to deny his hair fetish, admitting that he liked the feel and smell of hair, but he emphatically declared to the jury as he stared at them, I have never killed anybody. He didn't impress the jury, and several times throughout his questioning, he was less emphatic about things, claiming memory loss on several points of importance when he was challenged, and at other times blaming conditions such as sleep apnea, and alleging physical and mental abuse while he was being held in prison on remand. Other times, he either neglected to answer or repeated answers to questions that were put to him earlier. On the 28th of June 2011, the jury retired to consider their verdict, and they were back just four hours later. It was a unanimous verdict of guilty. The following day, Vestivo stood impassive in front of Mr Justice Burnett as he was sentenced to a whole life tariff, being told, You knew two children would find the butchered body of their mother. Inhuman depravity is an apt description. You are a cold, depraved and calculating killer. You unleash destructive forces on the whole family. In my judgment, there is no minimum term to be set. You will never be released. Take him down. This ruling was appealed successfully in 2012, and Restivo was handed a minimum 40-year term instead of the whole life sentence. He has since been tried and found guilty of the murder of Elisa Claps and has been awarded a further term of life imprisonment. He is unlikely to ever be released and he's currently fighting extradition to Italy to serve his life sentence. Restivo is now being considered as a serious suspect in the disappearances and deaths of several other women around Europe and it would seem inconceivable that someone with such a disturbing and overwhelming fetish would have a nine-year gap between murders. I find it very unlikely that Restivo has only killed Elisa and Heather. The ritualistic place in the hair in the hands of his victims, the sexual mutilation, this is someone who gets the biggest possible kick out of inflicting such horrors. And we know Restivo was active in cutting the hair off women, confirmed in Italy and confirmed in Bournemouth. Again, it's inconceivable that he just suddenly stopped for nine years. This is too much of a thing to him, and he's likely to have done this wherever he was. Danilo Restivo's movements from 1993 onwards should be scrutinised, because undoubtedly this guy has killed other people. He's recently been suggested as the killer of Korean student Jong Ok Shin, who was known as Oki, and who was stabbed to death as she walked along Malmesbury Park Road in Charminster on the 12th of July 2002, just three streets away from where Heather and Restivo lived. Oki was attacked from behind and stabbed with a knife, and although she wasn't killed instantly, she did die at the scene. In broken English, she managed to describe to paramedics who were attempting to save her a masked attacker before she died. A man named Omar Benguit was arrested and convicted of her murder, although this remains a highly controversial case. There's a link to information about it in the show notes this week for anyone who's interested in reading up about it. It does make for interesting reading, and granted, the evidence to suggest that it may be the handiwork of Restivo may seem circumstantial, but see what you guys think. After all, circumstantial has been a very key word here today. Restivo continues to protest his innocence of the murders of both Heather Barnett and Elisa Claps, despite the overwhelming evidence that proves his guilt. The only remorse he's ever shown is for himself, with no thought whatsoever for the countless lives he's wrecked and the families he's destroyed, and he continues to bleat on about his human rights being infringed by attempting to move him to Italy to serve his life sentence, a move which would save the taxpayer an estimated £2 million a year. He complains that the cells are dirty in Italy, although it's more likely, I think, that he fears retribution for his crimes, not of the judicial sense, if he was moved there. Regardless of where he serves his sentence, he is a clearly deeply disturbed individual and a very dangerous man who, if he wasn't stopped, would have undoubtedly gone on to kill again. And secure incarceration for life is the only possible solution. A man who could hug and console two children who had just made the most unimaginable discovery possible, knowing he was the one responsible for it. What else do you do with a monster like that?
This is one of the most disturbing cases that I've ever come across, and certainly one of the most disturbing individuals I've ever learned of. Why he chose Heather to kill that day is only something known to Restivo, but it's clear that he had earmarked her for murder some time before. The killing was too planned and the forensic awareness was enough that it kept him at large for another nine years, albeit a large portion of it under police surveillance. Throughout this episode, you might have found yourself wondering just how it took so long to get Restivo to course. Well, you have to remember that this was a calculating killer and a very hard-faced one who didn't let his composure slip for a moment. He could apparently explain away everything that was put to him and he was confident that he'd taken all necessary steps to avoid capture and it did take technological advancement in DNA profiling plus arguably the discovery of Elisa Clapp's body to get him to court. Police were convinced long before that this was their man and it can be said that their hands were tied. We said more than once here that suspicion or circumstantial evidence can't take the place of irrefutable evidence. For further reading on the case, I do recommend a book titled The Cutter, which has been an invaluable source in this uh, creating of this week's episode, and of course a link will be up in the show notes. So quite a tale this week, eh? When I started researching and writing it, I was tempted to use the case for my end of season episode. Yes, in a few weeks I am having a short hiatus before the True Crime Enthusiast podcast returns, but I've decided on a different case for my end of series episode. What then are your thoughts on Danilo Restivo? Is he just a sick individual who wrestled with demons to the point where he could no longer fight them again and they manifested and poor Heather Barnett took the brunt? Or is he just a monstrously evil killer, incarcerated only for the murders that he is known to have committed? Whatever your thoughts, Please take time to think of the families of Heather and Elisa. They should be reflected upon, and one can only hope that they've learned to move past Restivo's actions and move on with their lives as best they could. Opinions please guys, get in touch in the usual places. You know the score by now, the links are all up in the show notes, which seem to get longer and longer each week. I thank you all for joining me, and I shall of course be back next week with another case. Until then, I'm Paul, the true crime enthusiast, Wishing you all a safe and happy week, and I'll catch you soon. Take care, thanks all, and goodbye for now.